Well, good morning, everyone. It's a real delight to be here, and we come uh, praying that the Lord will bless our time together and speak powerfully to each one of us through his word. We're going to begin our service by singing in Psalm 66, and it's the traditional version of the psalm, Psalm number 66. We're going to sing from the beginning to verse uh, 6. So it's all lands to God in joyful sounds, aloft your voices raise. Let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you this morning that we can come straight to you, that there is no process, there is no procedure. We have only one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we come in his name, 
rejoicing that we're able to speak to our creator, the sustainer of the universe, our saviour, our Lord, our glorious Lord. And we ask, Father, that as we come to you, as we come together in fellowship with one another, sitting under the authority of your word, we pray that you will give us the peace of God that passes all understanding on this your day. The day that we remember that Jesus rose from the dead, having given himself the sacrifice uh, for our sin, having uh, satisfied the justice of God. We thank you, Lord, that his death and his resurrection mean the forgiveness of our sin, that you have taken away our sin in its entirety, that you have announced the righteousness of Jesus to be ours, and that you have adopted us into the family of God, and you have given us the Holy Spirit to be ours, to dwell within us, and to take the things of Jesus and make them known to us, to open up our hearts, to draw us to be closer to Jesus and to work within us in such a way that we are made more like Jesus. Our Father in heaven, when we look at our own lives, we see how unlike Jesus we are. And we want to make this an opportunity afresh when we can confess the corruption of our own hearts. We pray to, to look carefully at inside, at what we are, our thoughts, our words, our actions. And we pray, Lord, to come immediately to Jesus, believing and confident that Jesus, his blood, cleanses us from all sin. And so we want to confess, not because we believe that our confession saves us, but we confess our sin because we believe that Jesus saves us by his blood, the blood that was shed at Calvary. And we ask, Lord, that you will uh, bring uh, our attention afresh to what he did. And we pray that we will know uh, the peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, having been justified by faith. Our Father in heaven, bless the rest of this service to us. We ask that you will bless young and old. Hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, boys and girls, it's lovely to see so many of you in this church. Uh, it's a long, long, long time since I was in this church, and uh, I guess that, uh, that, that uh, a lot of you have been born uh, over the last 10 or 15 years or so. Um, I want to ask a really simple question. What is your favourite piece of clothing? What is your favourite piece of clothing? I know, I, I know that everyone's taste is different. Some people have lots of clothes in their wardrobe. Some people have got a full wardrobe. Some people not so much. And some people like all, a variety of clothes. Some red, some green. And other people have got a favourite colour. Some people like the colour blue, and some people like the colour red, and some people like the colour green. And so maybe your wardrobe is full of green clothes, or red clothes, or pink clothes, or whatever. Everybody's different in that way, because some people say, well, I love, I love uh, blue, and other people say, well, I hate blue, I would never wear blue. 
And other people are different, aren't they? But what is in your works? Maybe that. Maybe it's not important to you. Maybe you say, I don't care. I'm really not fussy. I've only got a couple of changes of clothing. It doesn't bother me. I just get up in the morning. And sometimes I don't even know what I put on. Some guys are like that, aren't we? That we don't really know sometimes what, because it's not a big thing to us. But for other people, it's much, much more important. I want to talk to you this morning about the clothing that God wants us to wear. And you might say, well, hold on a minute. Surely God doesn't care what kind of clothing I wear. Well, he does. But it's a different kind of clothing altogether to the clothing we've just been talking about. And if, uh, if you want to know what I'm talking about, you have to go to Colossians and chapter 3 and then you find out the kind of clothes that God wants you to put on let me read it to you he says this put on then as God's chosen ones humility that's when we don't think of ourselves too highly we think of others as better than ourselves and then we're to put on compassion. And that's when we care for one another. If we're going to serve Jesus, we have to love other people. That's what he told us to do. We are to be kind. He wants us to put on kindness as a clothing and meekness and patience. All of these are the kind of clothes that God wants us to put on. So... When you wake up tomorrow, God willing, when you think about what kind of clothing you want that, that you want to put on, remember, remember to put God first. And remember the kind of clothes that God wants us to put on. Let me read it again. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That's the kind of way that God wants us to live when we put God first and we, when we put others next and we put ourselves last may God help each one of us to do that we're going to sing again and this time we're going to sing in Psalm 139 and it's in Sing Psalms uh, Psalm 139 and it's, we're going to sing from the beginning to verse 10. O Lord, you have examined me. You know me through and through. We'll sing to God's praise.
to read this morning from the Old Testament, the second book of Samuel, chapter 7. Second Samuel, chapter 7, and we're reading the whole of the chapter. It's quite a long chapter, but it, I think you'll, it'll become clear later on that it's necessary to read the whole of the chapter. Now, when the king, that's King David, when the king lived in his house, And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things 
by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm whatever forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken and your name will be magnified forever saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you for you O Lord of hosts the God of Israel have made this revelation to your servant saying I will build you a house therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Amen. And we pray together that God will bless his word that he'll bring it to us with power and that we will receive it in faith let's bow our heads again in prayer our father in heaven give us that submission that wants to come to you now and that we want to hear your word we've already heard it we've sung it together we've already been instructed and enlightened and encouraged by it by a reminder of your graciousness towards us that grace that sent the Lord Jesus into the world. And what we have as a people, as a redeemed people, we want others to have. We want others to have that personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in which they know that their sins are forgiven and in which they are able to look death in the face and say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? And so we want to pray for people that we know who are unbelievers. We want to pray for people in our families who we have been witnessing to. People in our neighborhoods, people who we know in our places of work, and people in our community. We pray, Father, for this congregation as they bear witness to the truth of the gospel. We ask for the power of your Spirit that will take your word to men and women and boys and girls who right now perhaps have no thought, have no interest whatsoever. Many a person has started that way. And yet by the power of your spirit, they have been reached and brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we ask. Because what you've done in us, we pray that you will do in others. We pray for other countries of the world. We ask, Lord, for for wherever the gospel is right now being proclaimed. We thank you that we belong to the worldwide church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we rejoice to think that right now, it's not just this gathering of people, but there are many hundreds, thousands of of gatherings all over the world, and each one of them uh, who want to praise your name for what you did at Calvary. And our Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. We pray, Lord, for people who have gone out with the gospel. We pray for people who are suffering because of their faith in Jesus. And we ask, Father, that they may be given particular strength 
and particular grace to be able to face the danger and the, the, the difficulty that they face. We I pray, Lord, for anybody who's not with us today because of illness or because they're looking after someone else or because they're having to go to work or some other duty that's keeping them away, Lord. Our Father, we pray that you will draw near to them where they are and give them uh, to know their sense of belonging uh, amongst us. We pray, Father, that you will... Uh, bless anyone who faces particular difficulty right now, who perhaps even dreads going into another week. We pray that you will give them the peace of God that passes all understanding, knowing that you are uh, that you are on the throne and that you are uh, that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So hear us now. We ask and continue with us throughout the rest of the service and throughout the rest of this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing, before we come back to that chapter, we're going to sing in Psalm 98. Again, it's from Sing Psalms, and it's from the beginning to the ver- uh, Psalm 98, from verse uh, 3 to verse 6. His steadfast love and faithfulness he has remembered well. <laughs> I guess it's all too easy to pass over a chapter like this especially when you know the rest of the story of David 
And you know that some of the episodes in his life are some of the amongst the best known episodes in the Bible. Of course, the most famous being David and Goliath. There are all kinds of turns in the life of David. This is not, this chapter is not one that lots of people are familiar with. And yet, if I was to tell you this morning that this chapter is one of the most pivotal chapters in the whole Bible, you might be surprised at that. If I was to tell you even further that this chapter, far from being localized, only relevant to David, is actually relevant to all of us in every generation, including our own, you might be even more surprised. But it is. And the proof of that is verse 19, where David says, uh, This, this, what you have just said, Lord, he's talking to the Lord, and he's saying, This is instruction for mankind, for humankind, wherever you find them, in every generation. So it's for that reason, I think it's important for us to, to explore this chapter. And what it has to say, not just to David, but to all of us uh, today. Perhaps it's best if we begin by uh, looking at the background. David has not that long been king. He's no longer the boy David. He's not, we're years away from David and Goliath. We're past that. And he's now been uh, crowned king of Israel. And uh, he has he is now shaping he's now putting into place the measures that he wants there to be in his kingdom that's what kings do isn't it or at least that's what they did in those days when they come to the throne they maybe readjust things to the way that they want them and the first thing that David did was supremely important It was to take the Ark of the Covenant. You find this in the preceding chapter, in chapter 6. It was to take the Ark of the Covenant from where it was in a place of obscurity to a place of centrality in Israel. Now that was hugely important because it had been in a place of obscurity for a long, long period of time under the reign of Saul. See, at at roots, Saul had little or no interest in the Ark of the Covenant. That's why he was content to have it outside of Israel. And it remained that way for the whole of his reign. But now that David is the king, he wants to send out a message to all of his people. And the message is this, I want God to be at the heart of this kingdom. I want God to be at the heart of everything I do, everything my servants do, everything my army does, and everything that this nation does. And the way he sent out that message was to take the Ark of the Covenant and to place it at the very heart of Israel. That's what you find in chapter 6. But now in chapter 7, now that he's done that, He wants to embark on probably, yes, definitely, the most ambitious project of his reign. Certainly the most expensive. It was the most ambitious building project. He wanted to build a temple for the Lord. 
not just any temple he wanted to build the very best temple the most exquisite the most ornate the most expensive temple that has ever been built and by the way when the temple was eventually built not by David but by Solomon it was the most expensive building that anyone has ever built if you ever want to check into that those of you who are into building and I'm not but I did this project once I calculated the amount of gold that went into the temple when Solomon built, built it and checked it against the price of gold today and it is way more expensive than any building that there is anywhere in the world even the tallest, the biggest the big Dubai buildings all the big massive uh, uh, edifices that there are in various places in the world the temple is by far the more still because of the price of gold the, more, the most expensive building prove me wrong and please if you, if you, uh, if you come up with a different figure then uh, please let me know but that's aside David wants to build this because again God is at the heart of everything that he does and he wants there to be a place where people can gather and where sacrifice can be made he wants there to be a permanent place for the Ark of the Covenant for too long the Ark in David's estimation for too long the ark has been moving about from place to place and has spent the last 40 years outside of Israel. He's just brought it back into the center of, of, of the community. But now he wants successive generations to have a place where they know that the ark of the covenant is and where they can come and where regular sacrifice can be made. So that was his idea. And he puts that plan to the Lord. He commits it to the Lord. That's the first thing he does in this, in this chapter. He says, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar and the ark of God lives in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. It's a no-brainer, David. It's almost like you don't even have to pray about it. There's almost this sense that, well, what is there to argue about? What is there to even think about? What you're saying is, is the right thing. It's got to be the right thing. I mean, how can it not be the right thing to build a place for the Lord, for, for his worship? And surely that place should be the most ornate, the most spectacular, the most expensive building that is within your capacity to build. And so Nathan says to him, he says, yeah, just do it. Do it, David. Go. The Lord's with you. But that night, God came to Nathan in a dream and he said go and tell my servant David this is what God says and then there thereafter follows a lengthy declaration from the Lord that says in effect no you're not the one to build a temple for me and of course he says a lot more than that he says that your plan David his message to David is this your plan David is that you are going to build me a house my plan is you're not going to build me a house because I am going to build you a house that's the whole message of this chapter there's David's message to God I'm going to build you a house 
And there's God's message to David. No, you're not, because I... In other words, he's taking David's plan and he's turning it on his head. He's turning it upside down. Because God's plan is a better one. And because there are certain things that David must know that he has perhaps lost sight of and he needs to be reminded of. So this whole chapter is divided into two. You'll have noticed that when we read it together. There's 1 to 17, which is what David, which was what God says to David. I am going to build you a house. And then in verse 18 to 29, there's David's response. So I want us to look at these two things. There, first of all, what God says to David, and the message being that I am going to build you a house. And then perhaps we'll spend a little bit more time on the second one, which is David's response, which is a one of renewed worship to God, which I think is entirely relevant for where we are today as a place, as a place of worship and as a people who have gathered here on this Sunday morning to worship the Lord. So God's message to David can be divided into four things that he has to say. First of all, he said to David, I'm going to, build, I'm going to make a great name of you. I'm going to make you a great name. Verse 9. And then he says, I'm going to make you a permanent place. This place will be the city of Jerusalem. It will be known to everyone in successive generations as the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And then thirdly, he promises a permanent kingdom. Verse 10, he says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Then, lastly, he he promises them his forgiveness from verse 14 to 15. They will be in such a unique relationship to God that when they go wrong, and as they repent before God, and as they recognize his covenant relationship and love to them, that he will bring his forgiveness to them. Even although he has to discipline them in love from time to time, he tells them that his love will not be taken away from them, that he will forgive them and he will remain in that precious, unique covenant relationship to his people. Now if, and I'm sure for many of you this is true, you're familiar with the Old Testament, you will recognize the language The kind of language that God is using here. And you'll be able to go back and say, well, that's kind of similar to what he said way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses when he made the covenant with them. You remember way back in Genesis chapter 12 where God called Abraham to to, to travel from where he lived in the Ur of the Chaldees to go and live in the promised land. And he made a covenant that said that he was going to have children that were going to be as impossible to number as it is impossible to count the stars in the, the, the sky or the sand on the seashore. He also promised Abraham that he was going to give them this land. He promised them that, that his seed would be a blessing that, to all nations and that the, he would be their God and that they would be his people So if you recognize that, you're absolutely right. This is a restatement 
of what God said originally to Abraham. This is once again God coming to David and he's saying, that promise I made to Abraham, here it is again, because I haven't forgotten it. I'm still your God. You are still my people. I still love my people. I have an amazing purpose for them. And you are part of that purpose. I will make you a great name. It's not so that he wanted to elevate David. But through David and through everything that he represented. God was going to be glorified. Except in this case. There's one difference. One thing is added to the promise that wasn't there at the time of Abraham. And this is it. He says, your throne and your kingdom will last forever. Verse 13. He's talking about David's son. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, God is adding to the promise a a monarchical promise if you like something to do with kings in other words God is saying to David he's saying the promise I made to Abraham I'm now going to add to that by saying that there always will be a king on the throne of my people now here's the problem you know the history beyond this time don't you you remember how David how this all unfolds David has a son, Solomon. He does indeed build a temple. And then Solomon has a son, and he has a son, and he has a son. And, and every success of one of them is king over his, God's people. But you remember what happens. That things go wrong very quickly after Solomon's death. The kingdom divides into two. The north kingdom and the south kingdom. The north is Israel. The, the south is Judah. And very, very quickly, Israel becomes corrupt. Not so quickly, Judah remains faithful at first to God. But yet eventually they become corrupt as well. And eventually God brings an enemy in and they take captive Israel first and then Judah. They take them into Babylon. And there is no more king in either Israel or Judah. That's a problem, isn't it? Because how do you equate that fact to this promise? Did God forget his promise? Did God break his promise? Was God not able to keep his promise? Well, of course, you know the answer to all of these questions. The answer is no, of course not. So then how was this promise that there would always be a king on the throne of his people, how was this promise kept? Well, you know the answer, don't you? The answer is that while the people of God were in captivity for what was it, 400 years or thereabouts, in Babylon and during the intertestamental period, there wasn't a physical king on the throne. In other words, God had suspended that relationship for the time being. But then, there is a king. God raises a king. Or I should say, God sent a king. His own son. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who would be the king of God's people forever? Let me prove it to you. 
You remember in Luke chapter 1 where Simeon, he gets to see the baby Jesus or the young boy Jesus. And one of the things he said is this, the Lord will give to him, the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. In other words, here this little baby is the occupier, the rightful heir to the throne of his father David. And then in Acts chapter 2, in Peter's sermon, he said God had sworn an oath to David that he would set his descendant on the throne. And he's talking about Jesus. In other words, God kept this promise in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our king, the king of God's covenant people, and will remain that way forever. So this is an amazing promise. That no wonder David sat before the Lord. I mean, he, he, he probably didn't have the strength to get up. He sat before the Lord when he heard what God was going to do. And of course, we have the benefit of hindsight. We've seen it all happening. It's all been fulfilled. We can look back at the New Testament and know that Jesus came into the world as the Son of God. And that he gave himself on the cross so that our sin could be forgiven. God not only promised forgiveness of sin, but he provided the way in which our sin could be forgiven. So right now, he promises us that through faith in Jesus, we have forgiveness, cleansing from all sin. Isn't it a wonderful? We are the most privileged people in the world right now. We can sit here in this simple building and we can know that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's taken it all. He's washed our sin away. And we are in relationship with God. In which we can call him Father. And in which we can, we can know that come what may. God is our Father and our Lord. But that's not all that we find in the chapter. That was God's message to David. I want us to look now at how David responded to this message. And I want us to again notice that there are four things, four effects, if you like, or four responses that there are in David. First of all, first of all, God's word produced in David a reshaped understanding of the greatness of God. Let me say that again. It produced God's word, God's message to David. It produced in him a reshaped or a restored understanding of the greatness, the sheer magnificence of God. Look at what, uh, what uh, God says uh, in verse uh, 5. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I've moved, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, why was this important? Because here is David, and he's doing this noble thing. I don't think anybody would, would, would blame him. Maybe if I'd been David, I, I might have done exactly the same thing. And, and he means well. He's doing this in good faith. But he's losing sight of something that is incredibly important and that he needs to be told. God says to him, you're building me a house. I don't need a house. 
Have I ever asked for one? When you take everything that you know about me, do you really think that I need to be confined in four walls and a roof? Is it possible for me to be confined in four walls and a roof? See, what David is doing is this. He's devising this noble plan. And he wants to build this receptacle, if you like. He wants to build this ornate building so that God may be worshipped and so that God would, would dwell. Because he knows that the Ark of the Covenant is the place where God chose to dwell amongst his people. So he wants to make that permanent. What's wrong with that? Well, in one sense, nothing except... Do you know what he's doing? He's, he's, he's putting God in a box. Albeit an ornate box, a spectacular box, an expensive box, but it's a box. And God has to correct them. He says, I don't need a house. You need to rediscover my greatness. In other words, David needs a, a, to go back to relearn his theology. That is what he needed. That's what theology means. Theology is the knowledge of God. Theology is not for academics, it's not just for professors, not just for teachers, it's not just for even ministers. Theology is for everyone. You need to be a theologian. Because God wants you to know about him. And surely we want to know about him and we want to know more of him. We want to grow in our knowledge of God. That's what we're told to do in, 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 in Second Peter, I think it is. We're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of God. Surely if we've come to know him by faith, we'll want to know more about him. And the problem is that, uh, like with any learning process, it's sometimes three steps forward and two steps back, because you have to relearn some stuff, you have to, you make mistakes, you forget things. I think David is just, you might be, you might be thinking today, well, you're a bit harsh on David. Why, why are you criticizing him so much? Well, I think I might have done the same thing. I'm not, I'm not saying anything about David. And we all need to be corrected, don't we? We all, every single one of us. God disciplines those he loves. That's what Hebrews tells us. And I think this is God coming to David and he's saying, you've forgotten something, David. You've forgotten how, how that I, I'm omnipresent. That's what theologians say. It means that God is everywhere. You can't confine God. That's why it's so, so important to try and use as much as time as possible to get to know what kind of a God do we worship? In what ways does he make himself known in the Bible? How much do we know about him? How much do we want to know about him? Because that's where it begins. Do we want to know more about the Lord who loved us and gave himself for us and who is greater and goes way, way beyond our every imagination? The second thing that God's word to David produced in him was a rediscovery of God's grace. Remember there was a, a restored understanding of God's greatness and now there's a rediscovery of God's grace. Verse 8 where God has to say something else to David. Now David, thus shall you, uh, rather, now therefore thus shall you say to my servant, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following my, the sheep, 
that you should be prince over my people Israel. And that produced the response in David in verse 18 where he says, Who am I, Lord God? Who am I? He hasn't forgotten his own identity. He's basically saying, you're absolutely right. I'm a nobody. You remember the story when David was was anointed? God sent Samuel the prophet to Jesse, the house of Jesse, because he wanted to to find a king to anoint. And, and, And you remember how there's that story of how there were seven sons and they all paraded in front of Samuel and every one of them looked as if he had all the qualities he had the height, the strength, the ability all the qualities of being a king over Israel and, and every, every one of them uh, you're, you're saying well surely this is it no, surely this is the one no, number three, surely this is the one you remember the story don't you and they come to the last one and they say no, 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 there's one left but <laughs> he's, a, he's the youngest there's no way he's going to be king because he's a way out looking after the sheep And Samuel says, call him. And he comes in. The moment he walks in the door, Samuel says, that's the one. Because God said, that's the one. Because God's choice was different from our natural choice. God had his own man ready and prepared. And yet, David must never ever forget that. That at root he's a shepherd. That's it. He's not a noble. He's not in the ruling classes. He is just a shepherd. And God needs to remind him on that occasion. Now, here's where it fits with with where we are. What are we this morning? We We are... Where would we be this morning if it wasn't for the grace of God? I often ask myself that question, if I can be personal. I often ask myself that question. What would I be like? I know how defective I am, even as a Christian. But what would I be like if it wasn't for the grace of God in my life? It's a really searching question. It fills me with horror to think. Everything that, 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 that is in me, I owe to the Lord. I, I can claim nothing of my own. And that's what we mean by God's grace. A grace that takes us from the fearful pit and from the miry clay and sets our feet upon a rock. We're all prodigals. We've got nothing of our own. And we need to relearn that day by day. All of us. Then, thirdly, there was that God's word produced in David a revitalized sense of worship. How do I know this? All I have to do is compare the end of the chapter with the beginning of the chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, there's this almost, it's a no-brainer sense, isn't there? God, uh, uh, David wants to build a temple and it, it, he doesn't even pray about it. He just says to Nathan, here's what I want to do. Just check it out with God. Make sure it's okay. And it's a no-brainer. But then, he, despite the fact that Nathan tells him, gives him a message, which must have been a huge disappointment to David, David just explodes at the end of the chapter. He doesn't explode with rage. 
He doesn't explode with being, because he's irritated that he's not going to be the one to, to, to build a temple. You might expect that. But he explodes with, with praise. And this seems to have produced within him the words that he doesn't have at the beginning of the chapter. Because he assumes too much. The word, it's God's word that makes all the difference to David and produces within him that spirit of worship if I can put it that way that sense of worship that we all wish we had more of don't we I mean even this morning you come into church how many times you come into church and you feel oh, I feel so dead I feel so I just feel that I'm not I feel that I'm not really I, I, my mind is everywhere there's stuff going on in my house there's stuff going on in, in my family there's 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 there are things going on in my place of work and that I and now I'm going to have to go to church and nothing and how many times does that happen it certainly it happens to me and I'm sure it happens to you as well where we feel we can't find the words That's okay. God knows where you are. He knows our every circumstance. And his word is what makes the difference between us having nothing and us having everything. The last thing you want to do when you feel like that is to not go to church the very place that you need to be is where you hear God's word and it's amazing even that phrase that chapter, that bible reading that it can talk to you and God gets through to you and makes all the difference am I I not right in saying that and this is what happened to David he's transformed from a man who probably presumed too much to a man who is who is who is bursting with thanksgiving and with joy to God. Lastly, fourthly, God's word produces in David a repentant and humble acceptance of God's will. Must have been a real disappointment for David to learn that he wasn't the one who was going to build the temple. He had all the plans made. He'd spent ages on it. He had consulted his architects, I'm sure. He had done the costing. He had his business plan all done. And everything was in place. It was all all it was a matter of just just asking Nathan if this was all okay. It must have been a huge disappointment when God said no. And he could have responded in what I might call a Saulite response. Remember his predecessor Saul was a different type of person altogether. And so when God said to him, he told him to do something. Saul seemed to take the attitude, well, I can do it or I don't need to do it. Or I I just react any way I want. And you might have expected that to happen in David's case. But he didn't. He accepted God's will humbly and graciously because God's plan is always better than ours 
God's will is always better than ours. And indeed, his plan has to be shaped by God's word, and so do ours, so do our lives. And so David humbly accepted that God's agenda was far superior. He said what David's greater son said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And on that day he submitted himself to God's plan, which was to bring him to the place of sacrifice and death, so that by his death we could be redeemed and set free from the guilt and the power of sin. So four responses then that I hope will be helpful to us this morning. A reshaped understanding of the greatness of God, a rediscovery of God's grace, a revitalized sense of worship and praise, and a repentant and a humble acceptance of God's will, an acceptance that said, Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your living word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray to be humbled by your word. We pray, Father, to be repentant of all the deficiencies, the defects, the sin that goes on in our own hearts. Our Father, we pray to be accepting of your word, whatever your word says to us. And we want to be corrected by it. We want to be shaped by it. We want to be made more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, bless it to us, we pray, uh, as we sing together our closing item of praise. And uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit will do a great work in us. We'll continue that great work because it is God who works in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 132, it's the uh, traditional version. Uh, We're closing by singing uh, from verse 13 to the end of the psalm. Psalm 132 is the traditional version of the psalm. And it's verse 13. For God of Zion hath made choice, there he desires to dwell.
May the grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest on and abide with each one of you both now 